morning. We're going to open up the Bible and just read a portion of Scripture of Jesus, uh, actually a sermon that Jesus did, and him just talking about life and the life that he has for people. And that's going to be in the New Testament book of Matthew. And so if you want to turn to there, if you have a Bible, you can turn to there or click to there. If you want to use one of the Bibles in the pew, it's on page 809 in the pew Bible. Or I'm going to have the verses up on the screen as well. And so whatever you're most comfortable with, um, that's the text, one of the text, main texts we're going to be looking at today. Uh, before we jump into the message, I'd actually like to pray and uh, ask God if he would just speak to our hearts. So let's pray together. God, we just thank you so much just for your love for us. We thank you for this day where we celebrate you rising from the dead. God, that you would give us life, that you give us life where you, with joy and peace and hope and purpose. God, you, we thank you for the fact that you love us, that you care for us, that you are ever-present with us. And I pray now that you would make us aware of your presence, that you would remove distractions, that we would be able to hear from you, that, God, you would be the one speaking this morning that you would encourage us, you would challenge us, you would convict us, that you would reveal yourself to us, who you are and what it means to know you. God, I'm so grateful for everyone that's here this morning. I pray you would encourage us in a real way. It's in your name we pray, amen. So today we're actually starting a new series called The Pursuit of Happiness. We're starting it today, and it's going to go for the next few weeks as the spring gets going on. What comes to mind when you hear the word happiness? Now, do a Google search, and you will definitely not lack for definitions. There are pages of them. Um, Switch the search to images, and you're going to see smiley faces everywhere, Um, as well as some slightly cheesy quotes, and for some reason, people standing in fields with their arms up. A lot of images like that. Maybe when you think of happiness, especially the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, maybe our constitution comes to mind. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not only is our country and our culture defined in part by this idea, but it also makes the claim that we are created that happiness is one of the things that we're created for. And the Bible wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. A positive psychology article defines happiness as this, a state characterized by contentment and general satisfaction with one's current situation. A state, a state characterized by contentment and general satisfaction with one's current situation. The article unpacks a lot just about the idea of happiness and what it is, and it's a very complex concept, and we can sometimes misconstrue it with other ideas. In fact, in the same article, it makes some clarifications of how happiness and pleasure are two completely different things. It says, on the one other hand, pleasure is more visceral, in-the-moment experience. It often refers to the sensory-based feelings we get from experiences like eating good food, getting a massage, receiving a compliment, or sex. Happiness, while not a permanent state, is a more stable state with then pleasure. Happiness generally sticks around for longer than a few moments at a time, whereas pleasure can come and go in seconds. And so making the difference between the two, and that's important. Martin Slugman in that same article says this, the happiest people tend to be those who pursue the full life. They infuse their life with pleasure, engagement, and meaning. 
So this is just from a couple sources, and just thinking about this and making some observation about how our culture presents happiness, and also from our other resources, I want to make just a couple observations and comments on this. First off, happiness is subjective. Happiness is subjective. We can't talk about happiness without talking about the song Happy, and I'm not entirely sure how one feels like a room without a roof. Not really, I have no idea what that means. But... He also sings, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Now, and you don't want me to sing that. I'm just reading it for our all. It's a happy Easter. Um, notice the second line there. You know what happiness is to you. You know what happiness is, right? What is happiness to you? There are different we define what happiness is. The way our culture talks about happiness is that we define it. There's different things that can make us happy, but it's a very subjective reality as far as what that is. Second thing to think about with happiness is that happiness comes from something. It always is a byproduct. It comes from something. Pastor Tim Keller says, happiness can never be found directly. Happiness is always, excuse me, happiness is always and only a byproduct of seeking something else more than happiness. That we don't just seek happiness, that we discover, find, experience, seek other things, and happiness comes from those things. For some, happiness is found in purpose, accomplishment, work, careers. For some, happiness comes from relationships, community, friendship. Maybe for others, you join in with the Rolling Stones singing, I need a love to keep me happy speaking of a lover or intimacy, or for others, it's just pure pleasure itself. For, for some, happiness is just really straightforward. It's found in tacos. <laughs> or some other type of thing that you just get to experience in life, whether it's a hike in the woods or watching a movie or playing with friends or whatever that might be, there's something that gives us happiness. And then last thing in regard to just kind of general ideas about happiness in our culture, happiness is temporary. Happiness is temporary. Go back to our definition. Contentment with one's current situation. Well, our situations change quite a bit. Also, that article talked about that happiness is not a permanent state. The way that psychology is explaining that is that happiness is not a permanent state. I mean, remember that second thing, happiness comes from something, but none of the some things are guaranteed or permanent. In fact, not everyone is feeling happiness. Since 1972, the General Social Survey, right from University of Chicago, has been asking people this question. Taken all together, how would you say things are these days? Would you say that you are very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? Their latest results in 2021 were the first time that those who said not too happy surpassed those who said very happy. It was the first time that they crossed and the not happy group was bigger. And some was, yeah, but that's because of the pandemic. That's very temporary. That's skewed. Those numbers are skewed. Really? Because I would say that that's super revealing. The things that which many look to to infuse their life with pleasure and engagement and meaning were taken away or threatened 
showing how ultimately unreliable those things are for happiness. Because happiness is temporary. Happiness is temporary, comes from something, and is very subjective. Now let me clarify before I say anything else. I am not sharing all of this because I don't want you to be happy. I am not, I mean, geez, this guy's a real downer. He's even like knocking the happy song. No, I'm only knocking one line. It's a good song. Just that one line doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I'm not trying to be a killjoy on Easter. In fact, I want to talk about quite the opposite. I want to talk about how important happiness is. I want to talk about what the Bible shares about happiness. What the Bible shares resonates a tad with things our culture thinks. But what the Bible offers us is so much deeper and real and genuine and long-lasting and ultimately what we're longing for. So to grasp this, I want us to look at this sermon that Jesus preached. It's his famous, what's called, Sermon on the Mount. His, this large, long sermon that he gave talking about this life that he is introducing to humanity, this way of life that he is bringing to people. We're not going to go, let me just clarify also, we're not going through the whole sermon this morning. I want to talk about a small portion at the beginning of it and a small portion at the end, and then we're going to summarize what's between those two. Right off the beginning, Jesus is going to say this, though. He proclaims that true happiness is available to us. Right at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus proclaims that true happiness is available to us. Now, after an entire conversation, introduction here about happiness, for me to say that happiness is available to us, that might seem like a major duh. But what Jesus declares is a happiness that transcends and is greater than anything that we can come up with, anything that we can see in our culture. It's different, the happiness that Jesus shares. And he begins this sermon with this. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This beginning of Jesus' sermon, these verses are called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not a philosophical analysis or observation of the culture. The Beatitudes are not advice. They're not instructions. They're not qualifications. They're not orders. They're not laws. The Beatitudes are proclamation. This is Jesus proclaiming something. This is Jesus heralding in a new way to live. Think about it like this. Before January of 2007, this is what cell phones looked like. And this is actually a very generous idea of what cell phones look like. Go back in time a little bit more. They were clunkier. You had to screw the antenna on, carried them in a bag. I mean, think about the app. I think of the apps that my kids and I play, the games we play. You were lucky to get a couple rounds of snake game on here. Who played the snake game? Age yourself. Okay, there you go. This was the reality of it. On January 9th, 2007, though, everything changed. Steve Jobs introduced the first iPhone. 
At the beginning of his presentation, he said, every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Now, regardless if you're an Apple person or you're an Android person, Job, Job, Steve Jobs' comments stand the test of time and are true because it changed our culture. What he pronounced on that day, what he introduced, has changed the world since it was introduced. It not only changed how we communicate by phone, but it changed everything about how we do business, life, school, work, family, communication, everything. That one pronouncement to the world changed culture. Like Steve Jobs standing on that stage in 2007, the Beatitudes are Jesus standing before the world, pronouncing, proclaiming, heralding, I'm about to revolutionize everything. How you think the world works, how we go about life, how you find happiness, I'm about to turn it all upside down and show you what life really is. That word blessed can also be understood as happy. But again, happiness in the sense that Jesus is talking about. One teacher clarifies that to grasp what Jesus is talking about, we need to change the word blessed to wonderful news. Wonderful news for the poor in spirit. There is wonderful news for those who mourn. Wonderful news for the meek, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Wonderful news for the merciful, for the pure in heart. Wonderful news for the peacemakers. Wonderful news for those who are persecuted. It's the wonderful news, the blessed proclamation, the true happiness that Jesus proclaims in these verses is a way of life that is different than anything and everything our culture promotes and markets to us. How so? There's a couple different ways that it's different. First, our culture promotes a life of earned happiness that must be obtained or worked for. But Jesus provides a life of true happiness that's received freely as a gift. I mean, think about all the different things that I mentioned that we, the culture points to and says happiness is found in these things. Whether it's career, accomplishment, degrees, relationships, love, the latest gadget, certain house, car, tacos every night, whatever that thing is. None of those are bad things. And they can bring momentary happiness. But none of it's guaranteed. Because we have to work for it. We have to work to obtain it. And what happens if you don't work hard enough? What if you're not able? What if you don't have the opportunity? What if somebody beats you to it? What if the thing or the relationship or the house or whatever breaks? Really, the message of happiness in our culture is that happiness is available to those who can get it. It's not available to everyone. Jesus offers a happiness, though, that transcends all all stuff, all people, all places, all experience. Jesus offers hope and joy and peace and guidance for everyone. And he's proclaiming that this life he offers, the one life he offers, he gives it to us freely without having to work for it because he's done all the work. Everything that it would take to obtain this life, Jesus has done that and then he gives us the life. Our culture pr promotes a life of earned happiness. Jesus provides true happiness that's freely given. Second difference, our culture promotes a life of fragile happiness. 
that must be worked on and maintained. But Jesus offers a life of true happiness that remains constant and ever-present. Remember, happiness is, some, is based in something else. And everything our culture looks to, everything that we can find happiness is, not only do you have to work to obtain it, but you also have to work to maintain it. And, and, that, and even if it's last, even if you can keep up on it, that's not guaranteed. Our culture's happiness is like having a really, really old car. You have to keep up on the maintenance. You have to keep checking the fluids. You have to keep the tire levels. Yeah, when it starts not working or that sound happens, whatever it is, you got to take it in and figure out what's wrong. Keeping the car going becomes a stressor. And the reality is, is to maintain happiness the way our culture provides it becomes a stressor that pulls away from the happiness. And it's not guaranteed. But when happiness is based in Jesus and the life he gives, remember, the work is done. He tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he loves us, cares for us, walks with us, and we don't have to work to maintain it because he's the one that's providing it, and he's done the work. The true happiness that Jesus provides never fades, never weakens, never loses its magnitude, its luster, its awesomeness. The culture provokes a fragile happiness, Jesus offers a true happiness that remains constant and ever-present. The third difference is that our culture promotes a life of fleeting happiness that's temporary, but Jesus proclaims a life of true happiness that's both real and forever, both now and forever. Tacos get eaten, movies end, hikes in the beautiful nature come to a conclusion, jobs can be lost, Relationships can end, loved ones pass, sports teams lose, and so on. Add the next thing. It all ends. That's not being morbid. That's just objective reality. My son just cleaned his room the other day. And this was not just a move everything from the center so we can see the floor and push it to the sides. This was teenage purging. He's 13, and he spent hours in there to where at the end result was this huge box of stuff and he came in and brought it into the living room and said, Dad, I don't want any of the rest of this stuff. Let's get rid of it. And so I'm getting kind of digging through it like did he throw away something he shouldn't be throwing away or that I want to remember. And I'm going through it and memories are coming back when I remember him asking for this. Or want, I want it so bad. Five years old. Eight years old. Dad, but I need it. 10 years old. This is going to make me so happy. Everything in the moment that he just was absorbed with and felt compelled to have now is being thrown away. And that's the reality. The culture's source of happiness ends up in yard sales or needs to be upgraded or can eventually pass. Because the life of happiness that Jesus offers is based in him, because of him, from him, then our source of happiness never ends. He never needs to be fixed. He never needs to be upgraded. He never needs to be replaced because nothing can compare to him. His love, his care for us are perfect. His strength and his wisdom are ever-present. Our culture presents a fleeting happiness, but Jesus one that is now and forevermore. The life Jesus proclaims and makes available to us is wonderful news. True happiness in him is available. It is a life 
of true happiness freely given, constant and ever-present, real now and forever. Like I said, we're not covering the whole sermon, but it starts off with this. This life is available to you, and it is a life of true happiness. Again, not going through the, th- the whole thing. Let me summarize the middle, the larger content of this sermon by saying this. The life of happiness that Jesus proclaims is the best life for us. The life of happiness that Jesus proclaims, this life that he declares in the Sermon on the Mount, is the best possible life for us. His ideal for humanity that he offers us, nothing can compare to it. He talks about how we are meant to deal with anger, how we deal with conflict. He talks about how to truly enjoy sex and intimacy and relationship commitment, how to be people of integrity and people of peace. In the sermon, he explains how to be people who share love with everyone and why that's important. He unpacks how to be generous and empathetic to those who are in need or destitute. He makes it clear that God is with us and wants us to talk to him and teaches us how to do that, how to pray. He makes it clear that God offers us a vision and hope for life that are both bigger and better than anything we can come up with so that we can live a purposeful life without anxiety. He teaches us how to interact with those who are different. Different. He promotes asking for help and guidance when we need it. And he shows us how to make flourishing communities. You hear all of that, why would we not want the life that Jesus offers? This is following him. This is the life that he's providing. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto of the best possible life for humanity. Aldous Huxley once said, Most men and women lead lives at the worst, that are at the worst so painful and at the best so monotonous, poor and limited, that the urge to escape, the longing to transcend themselves, if only for a few minutes, is and has always been one of the principal appetites of the soul. That everything that we see around us, that we can see, interact with, experience, everything, none of it is satisfying. None of it is filling, and it gives us a small taste, but it never can satisfy, because the only thing that truly can satisfy us is what Jesus offers, and what Jesus offers is what our soul craves. Pastor Rich Valadez says, Jesus offers a way of being human that is powerful enough to tear down the walls of hostility that we have grown accustomed to. His gospel gives a vision of loving well. It is a soul-healing enemy-reconciling, truth-telling, justice-embodying, sin-conquering vision. It's one that we can't live without. This is the life he offers. Dallas Willard says, Jesus offers himself as God's doorway into the life that is truly life. He is the doorway saying, come home to God, because when you do, this is when you truly begin to live. This is the life Jesus is offering to humanity and what he wants those who follow him to be showing to the world. This is why he says at the beginning of the sermon, he says, followers, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world. What Jesus is basically saying is that he wants those who say they love him, those who say they follow him, to be walking show-and-tell presentations for what Jesus is all about. 
You remember show and tell, right? Let's bring this thing to school and tell everybody about it. Jesus, you and I, if you follow Jesus, we are Jesus's show and tell. You want to know what this life is about? You should be able to see it in them and how they act and how they live and how they interact with people, how they engage the world and what they're doing in their day-to-day life. I want you to see me through what you see in them. Maybe you're in here, though, and the church people that you've interacted with or you've seen haven't shown the best life. And maybe, in fact, you've experienced the opposite. We've all read headlines of the times that ministry leaders or people who follow, say they follow Jesus have done horrible atrocities. And maybe for you in here, those aren't headlines, but they're part of your reality and part of your experiences. If that is you, I offer no excuses and I minimize nothing. I want to say to you that I am so, so sorry that that's been what your experience is. That hurt is real. And I believe that Jesus is very angry that you experienced that and that he was misrepresented. I am so sorry that that's been your experience with the people of God. I want to ask you this. In the midst of that, in the midst of those really real things, I want to ask that you give Jesus a chance. I want to ask that you give Jesus a chance because here's the thing. The people that we look to like that, those people are, that we're talking about, they discredit themselves, not the life Jesus is offering. Many times what is articulated when we talk about such people and talk about such actions, people can respond with, if that's this Jesus thing, I don't want anything to do with that. And anytime anybody utters that, I just picture Jesus screaming, that's not what it's about. That's not what I'm about. The thing that you're saying I don't want anything to do with, Jesus doesn't want anything to do with that. In fact, he says at one point, on judgment day, many will come to say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. There are people who say that they love Jesus who are doing atrocious things and don't actually know him. And so don't reject Jesus because some of those who say they know him act like idiots. I mean, I think about baseball. Baseball is America's pastime. I know that not everybody would agree with that, but it's still true. Baseball has had some horrible moments in its history. The Black Sox scandal, steroid things in the 90s. Horrible things that put a black eye against the sport. The sport is still the sport, though. Baseball is still baseball. Those people did it wrong. Those people misrepresented it. We need more people to come in and appreciate what baseball is all about and show that that's not what it's like. It's supposed to be like this, and it's the same with the church. They're not, that's not what the gospel's about. That's not what Jesus is about. That's not what this life is about. They're misrepresenting it, and we want you to experience Jesus for who he is because they're not showing you the best life. They're not showing you the life that... Those type of stories don't get the headlines. The people who are trying, the people who are struggling, the people who want to love Jesus. It's only the bad stories that get the headlines. And so what I want to ask you and beg you is to look past the headlines. 
Not ignore your own experiences, though. And try, give Jesus a chance. In fact, I, I want to say, we would love to be that church for you. And I want to very boldly ask this, but would you be willing to stick with us as we go through this series? I'm not saying to plant down roots here for the rest of your life. I'm not saying to sign a paper to commit the next five to 10 years of your life. I'm just saying, while we go through this series, will you stick with us these next few weeks? I, I ask you that for two reasons. One, we're going to be going through each of the Beatitudes in turn to unpack what this life is. So if you haven't seen that or heard that, I want you to see and explain and understand more of this truly amazing life that Jesus offers us. And that's what we're going to be talking about. And the other thing is that, you know, we are not a perfect church. People, somebody in here is going to do something stupid and hurt somebody, and I'll probably be first in the line. But I can tell you this place is full of people who are trying and who are trying to love Jesus and want to love people for him and want people to see what he's all about. None of them will make the headlines for it, but they can show you what that life is all about if you can connect with them. And so we would love to be able to show you at least a little bit of what God is trying to share with the world around us. Know this, though. The life Jesus offers you is the best possible life. It's the life you were made to be a part of. It's the best thing for humanity. Which leads to the last thing. Choose Jesus to write the story of your life. Choose Jesus to write the story of your life. Like I said, I want to talk about the beginning and the end of the sermon. And here's what Jesus says at the end. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. This little story, illustration Jesus gives of people building these houses. One person builds their house on rock, firm foundation. The other one builds it on sand, shaky ground. This is the thing about the truly happy life, the wonderful good news life which Jesus gives us. He never tells us that it's free from pain or struggle or heartache or even tragedy. He never says that that will happen. You are in here this morning and you are either someone who is finding true happiness in Jesus or you are finding happiness in something the culture promises. You're either building your life, writing your life story on who Jesus is or you're building your life, writing your story on something else. There's no third option. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. Whoever you are, however you're building your life, the storms are going to come. And sometimes it's a little drizzle. Sometimes it's Chicago weatherman forecast. It's going to be horrible. Why is it not raining? But sometimes it comes down so bad and so hard and the winds blow that it's destructive to the whole house. Every single one of us, if you haven't already experienced that kind of storm, you will. Again, it's not to be morbid or fatalistic. It's called life. And so here's the thing. Here's the test for what you find happiness in. 
How does the thing that you find happiness in hold up to the storms? How does the thing that you find true happiness for your soul, what you identify with, how does that hold up to the storms of life? If anyone knew about a life that could be held up to the storms, it was my friend Pete. Pete did a Christmas sermon at his church in December of 2020 where he talked about how we write our own life script. And I'd like you to just hear a short portion of that sermon in light of what we're talking about this morning. So this is my friend Pete. We're made to live epic stories. And, and, and the scripts are always being written in our life. And the coolest thing about our life and the script and in, in, in our life is, is that when it gets grafted into God's big narrative, God's grand narrative, his big story, it can't be anything short of epic. But see, there's this problem that exists with, with me and, and with you. We like to wrestle the script away from the greatest story writer ever. And then we have the audacity to demand a rewrite. You see, we're always writing scripts on our own. And, and, and really, to us, our script, our material is just better material. You see, our scripts are glorious. <laughs> of course, we're the star of the story, and they include like a perfect family, crackling fire, um, children that are well-behaved, a spouse that, that loves us, hundreds of presents under the tree, the, the, just, just this, this epic story that, 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 that we're writing for ourselves. But you want to know what we don't write about ourselves or don't put into our stories? Pain, conflict, depression, anxiety, challenge, failure, um, devastation. You see, we've kind of written wishful autobiographies, right? And, and, and some of us are working hard to make sure those scripts come true. I mean, we're putting in extra hours. We're doing all that we can to somehow make that script true in, in our life and, and, and absent of all those things that we don't want. I want you to go to the garden of your life the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, in, in Gethsemane, Jesus stood before all these future realities, before beating, before being killed, before dragged, before mocked, before spit on. And in your garden, you're before some things. You're walking through some things right now, and there's some things on the horizon that, that don't look too great. Me too. I want you to go to the garden, and I want you to kneel down and, and we, we, we kneel down before the pain, before the challenge, before the unknown and unscripted. And I want you to go to God and I want you to say this. Father, script writer, if there is a way for this cup to pass from me, if there's a way to rewrite this, if there's a way to, get, to, to heal me, to, to change this situation, please, but nevertheless, I surrender my life. I surrender the script because I know the last chapter, Father. You see, this has been my personal journey this year in 2020. See, God wrote a script for me that I wouldn't write for myself. 
In fact, I'm recording this sermon right now a week early because in, in just a few days, I'm going to be starting my third round of, of chemotherapy. And I don't know if I would have had the strength and the ability to, 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 to record um, it. So I'm recording it early. You see, cancer is in the script for me. But you know what? Cancer and chemo can be what it looks like to have victory, to have hope, and to have joy. You see, the grand script writer, he'll use his script. He'll use the story he's writing for you. He'll use that long race that you're to run, your individual race. He will use the script to refine us. And he'll bring the fire into our life to grow us. Known Pete for over 10 years, and if anybody was just beat up time and time again, whether it was work or relationships or anything, Pete experienced a lot. He mentions this cancer battle here, and uh, Pete actually passed away this past January. I was able, uh, his cancer battle was very long, it was very difficult. He had done the sermon, you know, like two or three years ago. And I was able to visit him a few weeks before he passed, uh, just a couple of days after he had decided to go into hospice. He was in pain. He was sad and concerned for his wife and daughters. But during that storm, he talked about one thing constantly, his faith in Jesus. He kept coming back and talking about even in his last days, even within his life about to end, with everything he had experienced, he kept coming back to the joy and the peace and the hope that he had in that moment because of Jesus. He said that he had hope beyond his sickness and his impending passing. He told me that he had joy that was greater than his experience and that he had peace because he knew God was going to watch over his family. He said he didn't understand any of the why. But his joy and his hope and his peace weren't based on understanding his situation. They were based on his trust in Jesus, who was with him in his situation. He was based, his, all of that was based in the life Jesus had given him up to that point and the life he would have with Jesus after that point. Jesus, he built his house on Jesus. And to the very end, it stood the storm. His faith, his joy, his true happiness never faltered because it was found in him, something that would always be present, that always cared for him, that was always available. He built his life on Jesus. The wonderful good news of Jesus was the source of his happiness, and that happiness held up to the storm. And that happiness, that life is available to you. That's what Jesus is offering you. Stop trying to write your own story. Start try, stop trying to write your own script. Allow Jesus to be the one who guides your life and directs you and gives you purpose and give you meaning. We ask, what is the point of all of this? And Jesus answers that question. He fills us with life and gives us direction on how to go about it. How do you begin that life? Well, he said it before he even began the sermon. Jesus said, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
Our sins are anything that go against the, God's best, about what God has deemed as good. Anything not loving, anything of not loving God, not loving people, anything that goes against what God has deemed and God has directed us in. He says, repent from that life. Repent from all of that. Repent from all the things you're to turn away from. Move away. Go the opposite direction of everything you're trying to find happiness and life and meaning in and come to me. Come to the kingdom, the life, the way of life that I am proclaiming. It says, C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, Lewis, in part, he gets to what Jesus is talking about. We have to turn away from the mud pies, the small things, these little things that might be good in the moment, but do nothing for who we are and the larger reality of our lives in eternity. It's only in Jesus and the life he offers that we find what our heart craves. We turn to the good news of Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, I pass on to you what was most important. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture says. He went to the cross so that our sins can have the victory won over them, so the penalty can be paid for them. If he could take care of that sin problem that causes the brokenness in our life in the world. He makes it possible for us to be forgiven and restored back to God. But the thing is, Jesus didn't just die on Friday. He wasn't just dead for three days. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And when you conquer sin and death, what else can anyone throw at you? That's the life Jesus offers you. Come into this resurrected life. Because if sin and death couldn't keep me down, they're not going to keep you down because you're going to be with me. The happiness I give you will transcend everything. How do we do this? It says in Ephesians, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done. So none of us can boast. Normally we boast, you know, well, how are things between you and God? How are things between you and Jesus? And a lot of times if somebody has asked that question, they'll boast by saying, well, I'm basically a good person. I try to do really good. I'm better than this other guy I saw in the news or... I mean, my parents have always believed this. That's all boasting in our works or somebody else's works. We find life boasting in what Jesus has done. He went to the cross for me. He rose from the dead so that I could have life. It's because of him that I'm living. We boast in him and not us. We don't write our own scripts like Pete said. We trust the script that Jesus is writing. Romans says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. To say that Jesus is Lord, he is my everything. I'm surrendering to him. I'm following him in how to live. He's showing me how to live. I'm aligning who I am with who he is. I'm trusting that the cross was so that I could be forgiven. I'm trusting that the resurrection is true and that because of that, I can have life. I'm trusting in him. I'm finding hope in him. 
He's Lord of my life and nothing else is. When you can declare that, not just the information up here, but in the reality of who you are, that's when new life begins. When you acknowledge that nothing else can give it to you and it's only in Jesus. And so that's what, that's what this is about. That's what Easter's about. That's what the resurrection's about. That we could have the life we were made for, that our lives are craving for. And I pray that you receive that gift today. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing this one last song. And while this song is going on, you need, if you know that you need to begin following Jesus, you need to find life in him. There's no form to fill out. There's no one you have to go and get approval from. There's no checklist to complete. You just come before God. I need you. I acknowledge that it's what you did on the cross that what saves me. It's the resurrection that gives me life. It's you, Jesus, and not me. I'm aligning who I am with who you are. Again, when you can declare that and hear to him, do that right now. That's when you begin truly living. Let's pray together, then we'll sing. God, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you for the resurrection. I thank you for the life that you give us. I pray for everyone in here today, God, that you would help us to have the courage to be honest about what we're pursuing for happiness, that we would be real and true about where we're finding life. But may we see the truth, God, that it's only in you. Help us to find life in you because that's only where it's at. Just thank you so much for all that you've done and all that you're doing. In your name we pray, amen. Now, while we're singing this song, you take one of these cards out, these connection cards, and if you know you need to follow Jesus, maybe you're praying that right now, or maybe you have questions. I, I need to figure some stuff out. While this song's going on, take one of these cards out and just put your name on it, email or phone, and on the back say, I have questions about Jesus. Or I, I began following Jesus today. And when service is over, bring this card up to me or put it in that wooden box and we'll follow up with you. But that's going to be the most important decision you make, not even just today, but in your entire life. That's what this song is about, that we would not just sing this, but it would be the definition of our hearts. So let's sing this together.